continue in our series. 1 Timothy 3, 8-16. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let us pray together, please. Father, what an awesome privilege it is to gather together in your name to worship you. May you quiet our hearts, may you still our minds, may you remove distractions. May you impress upon our hearts the very real truth that we are in the presence of the living God, the holy King of kings. May we bow before you and we pray that your spirit would do his mighty work, working through the power of your word to accomplish your purpose in our hearts and lives for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Growing up in the church, you learn how to conduct yourself. You watch the leaders of the church and you learn from them. They have an impact on you, an influence on you, and they even begin to impact your behavior, both in big ways and in small ways. And just as an example, we had a scene in our home last weekend. If you don't know my family, we have five children. And our youngest, our twin daughters, they're five years old. And so last weekend, last Saturday night, we're gathered together upstairs in our family room. And every now and then our children like to play church. They imagine that they're doing a church service. And and so they take turns being the pastor. And this night, I guess, was Lydia's turn. She's one of the twins, five years old. And yes, we have talked to them about proper women's roles and men's roles in the church. And... So when she spoke, she used her deep voice like this. And so she's doing the service here. And we're sitting around the couches. And, and the first thing she does is she has us pray. So we stand up and she prays. And when she says amen, we all sit down. But she says, no, no, wait, stand up, stand up. You can't sit down yet. And then she goes like this. <laughs> and we all sit down. She has been watching Pastor Rogers, watching and learning and following his example. And that might be a a humorous way, but it is true. The leaders of our church impact us. They influence us. We watch them. We learn from them. In fact, who leads the church will largely determine the health of the church. Overall, the members of the body will look to them and follow their example. And that's why this chapter is so important in the life and health of the church. Because Paul is giving us qualifications for the leaders in the church. A couple weeks ago we looked at elders. Tonight we're going to look at deacons. But as you read through this list, and we just did that a minute ago, I noticed two things that are absent. 
first of all, this is not a list of to-dos. It's not a list of duties. In fact, as we read through the list for deacons, there wasn't one single duty listed there. Secondly, it's also not a list of talents or abilities. Very different from what we might expect. But the focus here is on spiritual character. This is what is essential. See, God is more concerned with who the leaders are than what they do. He's more concerned with who the elders are than what they do, with who the deacons are than what they do. This is the way John MacArthur said it. He said, when God raises up people to serve his church, he looks for those whose hearts are right with him. His concern is not about talents or abilities, but about spiritual virtue. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 6. Many refer to that as the calling of the first deacons. And in that passage, you're familiar with it, there was a little problem in the early life of the church. There were some widows who were in need of food, two different groups of widows, and one of them felt like they were being neglected. They weren't getting the food that they needed. So they brought this to the attention of the apostles, the disciples, and the disciples realized that this was a problem that needed to be addressed. But they didn't want to take their time away from studying the word and praying to handle this administrative matter, so to speak. And so they said, we need to choose some men to handle this. And you might think, this isn't really too hard of a job. You could just get anybody, anybody who can collect food and distribute it. It's kind of an administrative skill. But what do they say in Acts chapter 6, verse 3? When you look over that, the disciples say, choose for yourself seven men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. And they say then that we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word instead of waiting on tables. They use that phrase there to describe a ministry opportunity that involves service. But even in that seemingly perhaps insignificant service, they want men who are filled with the spirit. That's the number one qualification for that task. So as we think about this, keep that in mind. The most important thing for our leaders is that they are spirit filled, men of integrity. Not so much what they do, but who they are. Now, before we dive in, we'll look quickly through this list. I just want to mention very briefly the difference between elders and deacons. In general, you could think of it in this way. Elders serve with their words, with their mouths, in a sense. And deacons serve with their hands, with their deeds. Elders are called to teach and to preach and to counsel and to provide general oversight and direction for the church. While deacons are called to minister to people's material needs with a spiritual concern and care. And both are necessary if the church is to function as God designed it. But there's a difference. The primary role for a deacon is one of service. And in this way they set the pace for all believers. Really all of us who claim to know and love Jesus Christ are called to serve. To follow the example of Christ himself. When you read through the gospel, there's many times when you come across a passage... And you just are stopped dead in your tracks because what it says about who Jesus Christ is. And one of those cases happens in Matthew 20, 28. And I've shared this with you before, but there it says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, did not come to be served, then who can? Who can claim that they deserve to be served if Christ himself did not? He came to serve, and so must we. And so that is what deacons are called to do. Now, as we look at this list of qualifications, I think it's helpful if we divide it into three categories. I got these headings from Pastor Philip Ryken, the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church. I think they're very fitting. 
But as we look at this, we'll see that by God's grace, a deacon has a dignified life, a sound doctrine, and a stable family. First of all, in verse 8, a deacon has a dignified life. And the first thing that Paul mentions here is that deacons must be men worthy of respect. They must be blameless. They must have a good reputation both inside and outside of the church. There's a very simple way to think about this. You might think of the deacons in our church, the men that serve in that role, and you might ask yourself this question. Are these the kind of men that I would want my son or my grandson to be like when they grow up? Are these the kind of men that I would want my daughter or my granddaughter to marry when they grow up? Are these men worthy of respect? Paul follows that up with three more qualifications that kind of fit into that category, a dignified life. And he actually lists these in the negative. The next word says sincere in the NIV. But the Greek word is more literally not double-tongued or not two-faced. So the deacon cannot be a person that says one thing to one person, but then something else to somebody else. Or they cannot say one thing and then do something else. Deacons must be men of their word. When they say they're going to do something, you can know that they'll do it. They also need to be careful what they say, because in their ministry, they often are involved in personal, private, delicate matters. And so they must be careful of the things that they say. They must be sincere in their genuine concern for the people that they minister to. The second negative he gives here reminds us, again, that deacons must not be indulged in much wine. This is a similar one that he gave to the elders earlier. Simply reminding us that deacons are not to be preoccupied with drink. They're not to get drunk. They don't allow alcohol to influence or control their lives. They don't look to it for satisfaction or relief. And then the third negative is this. He says they should not pursue dishonest gain. They cannot be lovers of money. And I think it's obvious why our deacons need to have this qualification. Because they often handle the money of the church, and meeting the needs of the people in the church. They take the money that you give, and then they give it out to those in need. And so obviously they cannot be in the ministry for dishonest gain. The temptation could be there to be like Judas and take some of that money for themselves and to compromise their integrity and the health and ministry of the church. So the leaders that we choose to be deacons must not pursue dishonest gain. By God's grace, they'll have a dignified life. Secondly, by God's grace, in verse 9, a deacon has a sound doctrine. Now, deacons are not called to teach. They don't have to teach like elders do. Paul mentioned earlier that an elder must be able to teach, but he doesn't say that for deacons. Instead, he says in verse 9 that they must keep a hold of the deep truths of the faith. They must have a sound doctrine. They must be theologically sound. They must know the truth. They must be grounded in their faith in Jesus Christ. And they must do this with a clear conscience, Paul says. Their conscience must not accuse them when they think about the truths of God's word. It's not enough for them just to believe the truth. They must also live it out in their lives. They must be doers of the word and not hearers only, as we read in James. And it's the desire of the deacons to be able to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you and the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. The leaders we choose to serve as deacons 
by God's grace, will have a sound doctrine. And then thirdly, we'll skip down to verse 12. We'll come back to verse 11 in just a moment. But in verse 12, we learn that a deacon by God's grace must also have a stable family. And Paul begins here with the same qualification that he gave for elders earlier in the chapter when he says a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. And literally what that means is a deacon must be a one-woman man. And again, the emphasis here is not on a marital status, but on moral purity. So deacons do not have to be married. They don't even have to have children. Of course, they wouldn't have children if they weren't married. That wouldn't fit the one-woman-man category there. But the emphasis here is moral purity. So a deacon is a model of sexual purity. If they're not married, then they're a model of sexual purity. And if they are married, not only are they a one-woman-man, but they must be a good husband. They must be a husband that is devoted to their wife that loves their wife and serves her and gives himself to her the same way that Christ gave himself to the church. And the logic that Paul uses here is this. How can a deacon serve the church if he cannot even serve his own family, if he cannot even care for his own wife? Certainly we must not put people in leadership who do not care for their own family. And he he talks about his children there. He says they must manage their children well. So a deacon must be a good father also. He must be somebody who disciplines his children with love, who cares for his children and their spiritual direction. Now, in the, in the time that this was written, a lot of times households included servants and slaves, servants as well. And so Paul's touching not just on their relationship with their children, but in a sense their working relationships also. So when you think about who it is that we might have to serve as deacons, you think about the reputation they have in their home and also in their workplace. And again, Paul uses that same logic. If a man cannot manage his own home, if he cannot manage where he works, if he's not respectable in his workplace, how can we have him serve in the church? By God's grace, a deacon has a stable family. Well, let's look at verse 11 here. There is some debate as to exactly what this means. But it says this, In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, and trustworthy in everything. So here in verse 11, Paul mentions the wives of deacons. And that Greek word can be translated either women or wives, and that's kind of where the question comes into play. What is Paul actually saying here? And there's really three exegetical options you could say. Uh, either Paul is referring to female deacons, or to the wives of deacons, or perhaps to women assistants. Uh, women who assist the deacons. And I'm not going to go through all the details of the pros and cons of those different interpretations. Uh, If you're interested in taking a deeper look at that, I would recommend to you Dan Doriani's book, Women in Ministry, What the Bible Teaches. He has an excellent summary uh, of this verse and the interpretation of it. I'd also be glad to share with you my notes that I took from a result of reading that that chapter and, and several other commentaries on this issue. But as I look at it, it seems pretty clear that Paul's either referring here to the wives of deacons or to women assistants. Those seem to be most in line with the passage here, the context, and throughout the rest of Scripture. So either Paul's referring to the wives of the deacons themselves, or to women who have assisted the deacons. And as you read through the New Testament, you see that the wives of deacons were indeed involved in the ministry. The diaconal ministry of women is clearly seen in the New Testament. You look in Acts chapter 9. And you see Dorcas mentioned as a woman who is full of good works and acts of charity. You look in Romans chapter 16 and we read that Tryphena and Tryphosa were called workers in the Lord. 
And then especially at the beginning of Romans chapter 16, Paul commends to us a woman by the name of Phoebe. He says that she was a helper, that she cared for many, and then he actually calls her a servant in the church. And the word that he uses there is the word for deacon, the Greek word for deacon. So whatever title that they're given, women must be deeply involved in the mercy ministries of the church. The main thing is not what we call them. The main thing is that the women that God has called to serve in the church, to care for the needy, to do the work, the main thing is that they actually do that and that we enable them to do that and give them a place to do that and that they get involved and help others in that ministry. We must encourage women to use their gifts in this way to serve in our church and in the community. And I really think that our denomination, the PCA practice, seems to be in line with what the Bible's teaching here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. In the, in the PCA, only men can be ordained to the office of deacon. But in line with this view that 1 Timothy 3.11 is referring either to the wives of deacons or perhaps to women who assisted the deacons, we, enab- we have written in our book of church order, as we discuss this office, this is what it says. It says, elders are encouraged to select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in any distress or need. So that's what we do here at Westminster. We have a group of women, women who are elected by the congregation, and well, who are elected by the session and approved by the congregation. We call them deaconesses. And while it's not an ordained office, they assist the deacons in the mercy ministries of the church. They perform ministries in which the women are better suited, better adapted, better gifted, and able to serve in. And while it's not an ordained ministry, these women are performing an essential ministry in the church. They're serving as leaders in the church, and Paul says that they need to be qualified as well. He mentions three things in verse 11. The first thing he says is that they must be worthy of respect. This is the same word that Paul used for deacons in verse 8. So again, you ask yourself, are the ladies in our church who serve as deaconesses, are they the type of ladies that I would want my daughter or my granddaughter to grow up and be like? Are they the type of women that I would want my son or my grandson to grow up and marry someday? Are they worthy of respect? They also cannot be malicious talkers or slanders or gossips. And we're reminded again of the delicate nature of this ministry in the life of the church. They handle personal, private matters. They minister to people in deep need. And so they cannot be gossips or slanders. They need to be trustworthy, discerning in how they handle this role of leadership that they have been given. Now, at Westminster, our deaconesses provide a vital ministry to the health, the spiritual well-being of our church and of our members. And my family can attest to this. Shortly after we first came here, we were beneficiaries of the ministry of the deaconesses. When, When we came here, we had three children. Then shortly after that, we found out that my wife was pregnant with twins. And so when the twins were born, we had five children uh, under the age of five. We had a busy home. I was in seminary. I was working here. And it was a difficult time for my wife. She had a very difficult pregnancy, very sick during that time. But the deaconesses came. We didn't even know any of these women. But they came, and they were a tremendous help to us. I remember Marilyn DeLong scheduling people to bring us meals. And Janet Hoover and other ladies coming over and helping to clean our home. And we even, you know, this is kind of an indictment on myself. I wasn't a very good manager of our home at the time, but the, the home that we purchased didn't have 
uh, a laundry hookup in it. So you can imagine that was a little hard in our home not to have laundry in our home at all and have five young children. So Marilyn Taylor and uh, Carol Dunlinger would often come over and take our laundry home and do our laundry, bring it back all folded nice and neat. My shirts were all pressed and ironed. And, you know, they were very helpful to us in that time. It's amazing what my wife put up with and me at that time. But the deaconesses were tremendously helpful and the tremendous servants to our family. And that, that ministry really started some deep friendships with these women, women who we didn't even know. But they came and ministered to us in a time of need and shared the love of Christ with us in a practical way. And that's what deacons and deaconesses do. They share the love of Christ in a practical way. Leaders in the church are vital. They influence the members of the church. They spread the reputation of Christ throughout the community. They represent the name of Christ. And I think that we can be thankful for the godly leaders, the godly elders, the godly deacons, the godly deaconesses that we have here at Westminster. We must pray for them diligently, and we must continue to examine and elect and approve godly men and women to serve in our church. It's very important to the health of Westminster. Well, Paul goes on here. I want to share a few more things here at the end of chapter 3. Paul's laid out for us here in chapter 3 the character qualities that we should look for in leaders in the church. And at the end of chapter 3, he reminds us of why he wrote this. And he reminds us of who the, what the church is, of its mission and its message. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul has given us these instructions for proper conduct in the church, for order in the church. And now he turns his attention to what the church is. Listen to what he says in verses 14 and 15 again. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul mentions three things here in describing the church and what it is. The first thing he mentions is that the church is God's household. The word household refers to a family, a family relationship. Members of the true church are sons and daughters of the living God. We are children of the King. And I wonder how often we think about that or meditate on that. What a tremendous privilege it is to be children of God. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We've been adopted into the family of God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But do we reflect on that? Or do we take it for granted? Do we reflect on the fact that we were, at one time, dead in our sin, objects of wrath? But now, our lives have completely been transformed. And our eternal destinies have been completely turned around. We've been rescued from that dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do we think about that? Do we meditate on that? Do we think about the fact that why are we here tonight and not somebody else that we know that doesn't know Christ? What makes the difference? Why can we sing hymns that exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's gone to prepare a place for us and he's coming again for us? Why can we delight in that and not maybe our relatives, our friends, our neighbors that don't know Christ? It's only because of God's great mercy that he has reached out to people who are dead in sin and transformed us 
and adopted us into his family. We are members of God's household. We are part of his family. What a tremendous privilege. And not only that, not only do we have that vertical relationship with God, but now we also are all brothers and sisters in Christ by virtue of our relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we share in fellowship with one another. And I think we need to reflect on that more as well. How we ought to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. How we ought to care for one another and love one another and bear each other's burdens. So we are God's household. Paul goes on and says that we are the church of the living God. The living God is with us. In the Old Testament, God is often called the living God to emphasize the fact that all the other gods were dead idols. But the God of Israel was alive. In Jeremiah 10, the prophet says this, These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. Paul is reminding us that we are an assembly of God's children and we have God himself living in our midst. God lives among his people. He is here with us now, especially when we gather together in corporate worship. And again, do we have any sense of that at all? That when we come together, we are in the presence of the living God, the holy, holy Holy, King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who is light and in, in him there's no darkness at all. The creator of the universe, he is here with us now. We are in his presence. We are the church of the living God. We come to worship him and we come in reverence and awe. May we remember that we are the church of the living God, that the living God is with us Not only wherever we go, but here when we gather together as a body to worship him. Paul also says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. The temple of the goddess Diana was in Ephesus. And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was famous for the pillars that it had. 127 pillars. Some of them six stories high. Holding up. A marble roof, 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 however you say that. From Michigan, I think we say roof. Here in Pennsylvania, it might be roof. But they were, it was famous for these pillars that held up this enormous, beautiful site. And so Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. So the people would have immediately had this picture in their minds when they heard this phrase, pillar and foundation of the truth. They would have been able to relate easily to what Paul's saying. And what he's saying is that the church of the living God is to be like those pillars, lifting up the truth for all to see. To guard the truth against false teachers, also as Paul's been mentioning here in 1 Timothy. But remember what Paul said in chapter 2 and verse 3. He said, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So he desires, God desires... For the church to proclaim the truth and he desires for us to conform to it in our lives. Because we speak the truth with our words, but we also speak it with our lives as we live it out. That's why Paul wants us to pray and to dress and to organize and to choose leaders in the right way. So that we will be like a pillar holding up the glorious truth 
for all to see. People will, people will look at us and they'll be able to say, look at how they live, look at how they love, look at how they lead. It must be the truth. And God, by his grace, can lead them and will lead them to embrace the truth. That's why our fellowship must be loving and gracious. It's why we must act like loving brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It's why our worship must be heartfelt and sincere and truth-driven and spirit-inspired. Because that is one way that we hold up the truth for the world to see. It's why we support and pray for our missionaries. It's why we encourage young and old alike to go on short-term trips, to get involved in missions, and to prayerfully consider giving their lives because we are called by God to proclaim the glorious truth of the gospel. Now, if we're to do this, we must know what the truth is. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 16 as he closes out the chapter here. In verse 16, he says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And that word mystery there is the same word that Paul used in verse 9 when he told us that deacons must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. The deep truths is the same word that's translated mystery here in verse 16. Paul uses this word a lot, actually. He uses it to describe the mystery of the gospel. It doesn't mean something that is unknown or unsolved that we're trying to figure out. What it refers to is something that has been hidden for long ages, but now has been revealed to the church through the coming of Jesus Christ. It's no longer a secret. The church, the truth that the church is called to uphold in the world is a saving mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul explains this at the close of this chapter as he launches into what was probably either uh, a hymn or maybe a creed of the ancient church. And he goes through six different lines in proclaiming the glory of Christ. I would like to close by taking a look at each one of these as we reflect on who we are as the church and what it is that we are to proclaim and hold up for the world to see. The first thing that Paul says here is that Christ, he's speaking of Christ, he appeared in a body. Jesus Christ, God's Son, had lived in all the splendor of his deity from eternity past. And then he humbled himself and he came as a man. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philip Reichen expresses it like this He says, Since Jesus appeared as a man, everything he did on this earth, he did in a real human body. The events of the passion of Jesus Christ were physical events. His cheek was kissed by his betrayer. His face was spit upon. His body was struck and slapped. His back was flogged. His brow was pierced by thorns. His head was struck with a staff. Peter tells us that Christ suffered in the flesh. Real suffering. Christ even died in the flesh. It was a real body that was nailed with real nails to a real cross made of real wood. It was a real body that was punished for sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. A real body that suffered real pain for my sins and for your sins. Then it was a real body that was taken down from the cross, wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. God the Son did not just appear in a body. The body that he took upon himself was crucified and dead and buried. But he didn't stay buried. As Paul tells us in the next line, he says, He was vindicated by the Spirit. And Jesus Christ was vindicated by the Spirit 
when he rose again from the dead. 1 Peter 3.18 describes it for us. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he was proclaiming, he was confirming that everything that Jesus ever said and did was true. He was proclaiming that Jesus Christ indeed is, was, and is the Son of God and Savior of the world. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Then he also was seen by angels. Now the word for angels usually means what it says. And the angels indeed were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was angels who rolled the stone door away from the tomb. It was angels who first told the disciples that Christ had been risen. And those great words, he is not here, for he has risen just as he said. But Pastor Reichen also points out to us that the word for angels is the same word that can also be translated as messengers and refers simply to earthly messengers, to the apostles and the disciples. And perhaps it is speaking of the fact that after Christ's death and resurrection, he was seen by the apostles as well. And think about that. Think about how that changed their lives and the impact that had on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the moments after, leading up to and after Christ's death, what do you have happening with the disciples? You have Peter denying Christ. He spent three years with them, and here he is in, in the hour of need, denying Christ three times. Then you have all of the disciples fleeing and scattering, hiding up in a room. Their hope is gone. They're confused, they're frustrated, they don't understand what has happened. And then what happens? They see the risen Christ, and their lives are transformed. In Acts, we read what happens to Peter and John. So they go from denying Christ, fleeing from Christ, to in Acts, Peter and John are arrested, and they're beaten, and they're commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Also, the Apostle Paul. Who was Paul? Paul was Saul, the murderer, putting to death people who followed Jesus Christ. But what happened when he saw Christ? On the road to Damascus, on his way to putting Christians to death, Christ appears to him and transforms his life. He goes from being a persecutor of the truth, to being a proclaimer of the truth, from being a murderer to a messenger. This is what happens when you see Christ for who he is. The disciples saw the risen Christ. Their lives were changed, and they testified to the fact that Jesus had won the victory over the grave. And God used them to turn the world upside down. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But Christ is risen. And when we see Christ for who he is, our lives will be changed as well. When we see Christ for who he is, when we recognize that he is the risen Savior and King, then he will be proclaimed among the nations. When we see Christ for who he is, we'll be like Peter and John. We won't be able to keep it in. We won't be able to help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And that's what it refers to in the next line. He was preached among the nations. This is what the disciples did then. 
They took the gospel of Jesus Christ out among the known Gentile world of their day. And Acts describes the spread of the gospel. But I think something that we need to realize in our day also, particularly here in America, we ought to pray that God would impress upon our hearts that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just America. We need to pray that God would give us a worldwide kingdom perspective, that he is at work throughout the world. And we do do this here at Westminster. We support missionaries, and I tried to look through our supported missionaries, and I found that it was in at least six of the seven continents. We have missionaries spreading the gospel throughout the United States, throughout Canada, throughout France, throughout Germany, the United Kingdom, Bulgaria, Japan, Taiwan, Kenya, South Africa, Peru, Australia, India, and probably many other places. We need to continue to proclaim Christ among the nations. But even though we have missionaries in all of those places, there are still thousands, thousands of unreached people groups in our world today. There are still billions, billions of people who don't even have a portion of the Bible in their own language who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Billions of people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. If you're interested in finding out more about that, you can go to joshuaproject.net that talks about the unreached people groups in our world today. And I think when we reflect on that, our hearts ought to break for these people who haven't even heard the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. And you can be sure we ought to be filled with gratitude that we have, that Christ has taken us from being a people that were not a people to being the people of God. And we ought to seriously pray for these people. We ought to seriously give money to missionaries to go. And we ought to seriously give our own sons and daughters moms and dads, brothers and sisters, even ourselves, to consider to take the gospel to the nations. Because what happens when Christ is proclaimed among the nations, he is believed on in the world. The apostles took the message to the world around them, and what happened? In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are added. 3,000 people go from going to hell to going to heaven, from not knowing who Christ is to having Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then you read through the end of chapter 2, and what does it say in Acts? It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And it's been that way ever since. In youth group, we've sung a song this year that has a chorus that says this. It's taken straight from Psalm 68, 20. It says, our God is a God who saves. That is who he is. Our God is a God who saves. In the summer at junior high camp, we sang a song with this, this phrase in it says, through you the blind will see, through you the mute will sing, through you the dead will rise. And as we sang that song over and over again, I meditated on that little word, will. Through you the blind will see, through you the mute will sing, through you the dead will rise. And it's talking about people coming to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. And I was encouraged by the fact that this will happen. Our God is a God who saves. When he is preached among the nations, he is believed on in the world. He calls his people to himself and brings them to salvation. This is what he does. Every day he saves. People believe lives are transformed and Christ is glorified. And this is why the church exists. To proclaim the glorious mystery, the truth of Jesus Christ so that the world may see 
and believe so that men and women and children will come to salvation. The last line is that Christ was taken up into glory. Christ was taken up into glory. He ascended into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high in victory and in glory, our great Savior and King. In Philippians, Paul writes, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was taken up in glory. The truth of Jesus Christ demands a response. It requires that we as a church be careful, be extremely careful and diligent about the men and women that we put in places of leadership. They will set the pace for the church. We will learn from them. They will exert an influence on us. We will copy their behavior. They reflect the name of Christ. We will follow their lead. And so we must elect people who, by God's grace, will fulfill these qualifications, who will display the character and the priorities of Jesus Christ himself. But this is not only for the leaders in the church. Indeed, all who name the name of Christ, all who call themselves Christians, all who know and love and desire to follow Jesus Christ must conduct their lives. They must have a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him alone, to our glorious Savior alone, be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. Your wisdom is beyond tracing out. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. We praise you and thank you for the wonderful plan of salvation. How you have given your own son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us and redeem us. And how you have purchased for yourself a people that are your very own. And then you have given us your word to guide and direct us how we are to function as your people. Lord, may we take serious heed to your words. May we function as a healthy body that brings glory and honor to your name. Give us wisdom, O Lord, in choosing our leaders. Raise up for us people who love you and desire to follow after you. We pray for our elders, our deacons, our deaconesses, others who lead in the church, we pray, Lord, that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would enable them to resist temptation, that you would enable them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that the name of Christ will be lifted up and magnified in our community, that people would know that you are a great Savior. Father, we thank you that we have this great privilege to proclaim the mystery of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Christ is. Enable us to do that, and may we do it with joy, And may you show your transforming power. We ask that you would work in a mighty way, above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine, as you bring your people to salvation in Christ. We pray this in his name, and in his name alone. Amen.